Today for Primer, I'm talking to James Plunkett. James has been a policy advisor to Number 10, helped run one of the UK's leading think tanks, and he's now Director of Design, Data and Technology for Citizens Advice. He's also the author of End State, one of The Guardian's political books of the year. In his book, James explores nine big social problems and nine radical ideas to put things right. But what he says he's really interested in is the project these ideas are a part of. How do we upgrade the state so it's capable of governing a 21st century economy? Here's our primer with James Plunkett. So James, welcome to Primer. Um, I want to start with a very intriguing episode near the start of the book where you've been, uh, you've been invited to join a discussion in the garden at number 10 between Gordon Brown, the, fr- the Prime Minister, famously technocratic, very much a product of 20th century government, and Tim Berners-Lee, the father of the internet. What's being discussed? Yeah, it was, um, it was kind of the moment I had the idea that then slowly kind of gestated and led to the book. Um, and it was, uh, the topic was, I think, opening up government data so that it could be used you know, by, by, by companies and so on. And I think that, that kind of faded from view. But the, um, the thing that stuck with me was more the, um, almost the image, the, the disconnect between the way they both spoke about the problem. And as you say, you had um, sitting in the garden, slightly odd setting on these wicker chairs on a spring day. And we had um, Gordon Brown on my left and Tim Berners-Lee on my right. And I just remember being really struck by the different language almost that they were speaking. So you had Brown talking about what levers can we pull to solve this problem. I think at one point he said, how do we beat the Americans on this agenda, Tim? Um, and Berners-Lee, who anyone, anyone who's heard him speak will know, speaks sort of buzzes um, to the language of the internet. You know, he was speaking about networks, about platforms. Um, and it just struck me that they were, it was a different logic. And they were speaking to a different logic. And I left feeling not quite able to place that, but feeling uneasy and and feeling like this idea of a disconnect or a kind of widening gap between the way government functions and thinks and the way the economy functions might become you know a bigger problem in, in coming years. So we've got this public policy settlement, which has worked fantastically for us for the last 150 years. But you're arguing is increasingly running on the wrong set of assumptions. We've got a economy that's changing radically, and we've got a state that doesn't seem to have got the memo. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and I I, I um, talk a lot about the industrial revolution in my book, which I think is analogous in some helpful ways to the digital revolution as it's playing out, and and largely the kind of argument is that in response to the industrial revolution and the, the new type of economy that emerged at that time in the mid mid 19th century, we built a whole set of governing arrangements to deal with the problems that manifested um, from that economy. So we built the welfare state as we know it today, social insurance mechanisms to protect people when they fall sick, for example, free education, healthcare, public sewers I talk about in the book, you know, there wasn't such a need for public sewage systems when people didn't live in big cities. And that need emerged uh, very visibly in the mid 19th century as sewage piled up, and so we built public sewer systems. And they were they were a dan- they were a dangerous and radical invention. When they first the time, emerged, people dismissed them as as a, as a danger, as a, an act of of overreach by the government. Um, and so these radical ideas took shape and then became a new common sense for how you how you govern an industrial economy. 
Um, and that took a long time. It took you know, upwards of a century to build those institutions as we know them today. But largely speaking, we're still living with that state, right? That is still the state as we as we know it, designed to respond to that economy. And of course, now what's happening is a new kind of economy is is emerging that functions in a deeply different deeply different way. Um, and so those industrial era mechanisms are just unfit for the kind of problems that we see now. So can you give me a practical example of that widening gap between the state and the economy? Yeah, I think a lot of it is about is about pace, the pace at which things move. So if you take an example of, um, let's say, someone who's on a zero hours contract or one of these very flexible kinds of employment, maybe working in the gig economy, who suddenly gets zeroed down. So they're sort of maybe technically still employed, but suddenly they've got no income. Um, or maybe their income has dipped for whatever reason via Uber or something, one of those platforms. Um, it takes five weeks to get your income on universal credit, um, the, the Britain's main welfare system now. And by that point, you might be back, you might, your hours might be back up again. Um, and so these kind of bureaucratic systems that we built, in that case for welfare, where you, you know, they were designed for a world where you fell sick and so you applied for benefits and it took time to come through but then you were okay for a few years or a year um, and then you move back into work they just don't move at the pace that we need um, lots of examples as well of just where we're not using the full power of of new tech so in, in healthcare for example um, in education um, many of these different examples where we're sort of still running public services on that kind of big kind of corporate bureaucratic model um, hierarchical model um, of the 20th century and and where it's not a coincidence that tech companies don't work like that anymore. So, you know, how do we bring some of those methods into the way we run the state? There's a really interesting section in the book where you talk, and this is interesting to me because I've worked a lot in this area, uh, you talk about how we fix the gap, the skills gap, especially for adults, between the old sort of industrial age jobs and the new types of jobs and skills that people are going to need to be gainfully employed, earn a living, feel feel pride in what they're doing. Can you um, may, maybe use that as a as an example of practically how that how how policy and public service designers might think about a problem like that now? Yeah. So I think this this question of you know, we have these huge skills shortages in response to this, uh, the new economy that's emerging. And the education system fundamentally, although we talk a lot about lifelong learning and politicians often give speeches about, about lifelong learning, really our education system is still based on the paradigm of, you know, educate kids when they're young, that prepares them for life. Um, and then they go into the labour market uh, and work their way through. If anything, if there is adult skills training, it happens with your existing employer. So we kind of rely on the employer to do that you know with the pace of change at the moment you know I, I write in the book that a kid who starts school now won't 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 retire until the 2080s so the idea that we can kind of train a kid now for what is in store in in decades time with the pace of change it's just I think it's just it's just not going to happen so you have to think seriously about um, ongoing retraining giving people access to these skills um, and so partly that's the kind of a big shift in the way we think about education in that case from this kind of prepare us when we're young to, to genuine life, lifelong learning. But, but I think it's also um, policymaking just needs to become much more agile, for want of a better word, just much quicker 
in responding to change. And these kind of very slow cycles of change in policymaking and, and, and public service design, where we design a settlement and then it kind of, that's the settlement for a decade or more. It, 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 it just does not equip us for the pace of change that we're seeing these days. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Can you can you talk a bit more about what agile policymaking might look like? Yeah, so I think, and I, I've been thinking a lot about the um, linear processes by which we make policy and also design and implement new public service reform often. That, again, this is from the industrial paradigm of thinking about government, that we have um, a sort of pre-digital way of thinking about policymaking where, you know, we'll identify a problem We'll do some research to work out what the solution might be to that problem. We might consult in a quite formal, quite formal way and say, what, does, what do people think about this proposal through a green paper? That becomes a white paper. Then if we can find time through a Queen's speech, we legislate. That then is not quite written on vellum anymore, but um, you know, we still wrap the law, I think, in vellum. So the idea that the law, once it's passed, is then sort of stuck for a long time. And as anyone who works in digital will know, that 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 linear, linear if you like, waterfall way of solving problems um, is just not quick enough in terms of its cycles of iteration and learning. Um, and so when I talk about agile policymaking and agile public service design, um, you know, it's lifting a lot of the principles that will be familiar with people from digital work. So, you know, can you embed people into teams that have all the disciplines you need so that you've got policy folk working alongside stats people, digital people, delivery people to solve a problem? Um, can you have quicker cycles of learning so that you're not having this very linear process, but you're um, trying something out, seeing if it works, changing it if it doesn't? Um, and I think those ways of thinking about policymaking, certainly in the policy side of things, um, are still relatively experimental in Whitehall. That's, there are some examples of that emerging, but by and large, the system is still this kind of linear and painfully slow system um that that just doesn't learn quickly enough um in the kind of environment we're now in there's a an, there's a very interesting there's a very interesting phase in phrase in the book where you say that the um the politics of 2050 are rooted in ideas that are already with us so and you talked a bit about what those sort of ideas but just just talk a bit more about that what what are these ideas that are going to form our politics in two, three decades. Yeah, I have this, um, I mean, the book's very optimistic and I, and despite everything, I feel very optimistic about our potential to respond to this 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 challenge. I think um, one of the things that's fascinating is just how slow the process of change is. Um, but one of the things that means is that um, ideas emerge and it takes them a long time to become the new common sense, as I think Carlotta Perez uses this phrase, the economic historian, and I borrow that in the book, because I love this concept that um, an idea emerges, and at first it's seen, seen as radical, unaffordable, you know, dangerous, um, and then over the course of decades that becomes a new common sense. Um, and it's bizarre that once those ideas become common sense, we then act as if they always were common sense, and we immediately forget they were ever seen as radical. Um, and this happened with ideas we now think of as completely accepted. So free education, public sewers is a great example. You know, when, when public sewers were first suggested, uh, people said it was an act of dangerous government overreach um, and it was a thin end of a wedge, you know. Um, and then, of course, it was accepted as necessary. So so it's fascinating, I think, because that means that there are there are ideas with us right now as we speak that are currently seen as 
dangerously radical and unaffordable that in 20 or 30 years time will be will we'll make up the new state if you like will we'll be the common sense um so i give out you know, the book in a, in a way as a kind of a search for what those ideas are so i talk about um the four-day week is a good example it kind of emerging before our eyes as a kind of starting to gain acceptance i love it in, um, the, in the book you say that the weekend is such a great idea we forgot we invented it completely amazing that we forget that we act like the weekend is just a natural thing that saturday and sunday are just time off that, that was that was just not the case you know we had a six-day working week um in the 1870s um and before and the two-day weekend was an incredibly radical concept and people said it would bankrupt manufacturing when it was when it was mooted um, and then of course we just act like that's always been the case um and so i i think the four-day week is in exactly that vein that people say this is kind of daft yeah this is economically doesn't add up and my guess is it will seeing now it, it become a become a new kind of norm um but but, but it's fascinating i think so it's both that there are policy ideas out there like four-day week um, basic income i explore in the book at another radical idea talk james talk about that so um ubi universal basic income for those who don't know the phrase just, just explain what it is first yeah so the basic income and i, and I have to i'm not entirely a convert to this idea yet because it is um it's a particularly radical one but the idea is that um instead of having this rather kind of labyrinthine benefit system that we've created that we built in response to industrial the industrial economy where at the moment the benefit system is um, you could argue highly bureaucratic it's obviously all about targeting money there's lots of uh, means testing as they call it so you have to jump through lots of hoops lots of process um, the, the universal basic income says let's scrap the complexity and let's essentially universally give people money as a kind of base level of security um, and so everyone would get a modest income uh, from the state and that would almost underwrite their lives if that makes sense and so you would have that confidence that even if you fell on hard times or became sick you would have that there um, and people who advocate it say that it's uh, less stigmatizing for example because you don't have the sort of benefit claimant kind of stigma that we have at the moment and um, it's less complex and um, it works better with digital jobs where obviously people can move very quickly zero hour contracts be zeroed down and income goes up and down very quickly uh, and so the the argument is that maybe actually what we need to build now is 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 that sort of simplicity and clarity and security for people in an economy that is so so turbulent and so insecure maybe that's what we need now rather than this very technocratic kind of benefit system yeah and there are sort of um there have been studies there's been a study in norway hasn't there there have been studies done around the world in states and nations kind of inconclusive but there are there are suggestions that for instance it could just be uh in terms of the costs the sort of the um second order costs of things like welfare the justice system you could potentially dramatically reduce them just by giving people that fundamental level of security yeah and the surprising result that comes out of a lot of the studies is um that obviously people assume that there'd be a work incentive effect as the kind of economists would would put it that people once they had this income would say well it's not worth working anymore and what you tend to find in the studies is that doesn't transpire in the way people think and actually people use the extra security to maybe um move jobs more often or to to retrain because they have that kind of cushion there um, and so actually people make quite positive choices 
in their lives on the basis of that security in a way that people currently you know that kind of if you like the fear-based benefit system we have at the moment that's based on we will sanction you if you don't do the right thing doesn't lead people to make those kind of positive choices in their lives so it's a fascinating one and as i say i'm not fully a convert because of the um it's much less targeted arguably it's much less good for the very poorest because it spreads money much more thinly but but certainly it's kind of gaining momentum um and you know could that be an idea that over the next 20 or 30 years takes center stage it's not completely impossible i would say yeah so i mean on the face of it it sounds nuts doesn't it you know and the people are probably rightly wary about trying this out at population scale but maybe we can come that back to um the the effect of the pandemic a bit later but i think it's very interesting that you've got what sort of digital folks would think of as a ubi alpha that's just happened at population scale so during the pandemic you had the furlough scheme mm. in the uk in the us you've got the federal government cutting every family in the union a check for three thousand dollars looks quite a lot like ubi doesn't it yeah it's fascinating i think often crises the way that you react in a crisis tells you quite a lot about the way you should be behaving more you know all the time if that makes sense and i think the other thing that's so a that's fascinating the, the way that we found that actually the benefit system wasn't particularly well equipped to deal with a crisis of that magnitude um and for example you know one reason the government's ended up being relatively universalist in America as well, was that it was hard to make sure you reached everyone with the current benefit system. You might have left out self-employed people, for example, and so on. And so often governments reached for that simpler, if you like, tool, as you say, kind of almost like an alpha of a, a basic income. Um, the other thing I find fascinating about the um, response to the pandemic is that we were actually quite agile in some in some ways. I'm, I'm particularly interested in... Um, you know, the, the, the regular press conferences that were given, which show and tells. you could criticise in some senses, but they were almost show and tells. Um, and, you know, this image of having the prime minister or the policymaker, the minister, flanked by civil servants, presenting live data on outcomes um, and saying, what are we going to do about that? And then being quizzed by the press and the public directly by users of those services um, on, you know, why are you doing that? Why aren't you doing more? I mean, that is a that is. That, that is almost like a retro or a show and tell. It's, it's directly drawn from digital methods. And I think actually one of the great shames is we've kind of now scrapped those. Um, and there's been this sort of itching to get back to business as usual. But um, it tells us a lot, I think, the way that we respond to crisis. You sort of think maybe that's how we should be acting a bit more, you know, more, more, more often in policy work. Yeah. So look, there's a, um, there's a, a, at the end of the book, there's a lovely image where you talk about these bold policy ideas and interventions that we just had to roll out at speed during the pandemic being put back behind the safety glass um it is a crisis a terrible thing to waste yeah i, I think I'm, I'm fascinated by the role of the role of crisis in change and i the um the metaphor i often use is is um change moves like a mudslide in the sense that you get this in the industrial revolution this absolutely happened um build up of social problems uh, accumulating frustration often populism emerges because of this kind of sense of why aren't you solving this stuff kind of um, that piles up at kind of politicians doors um, and so you get this accumulation of mud if you like on the hillside of of unresolved social problems um 
no one can predict, if you like, the rainstorm that will then unleash the mudslide. Um, and it's really hard to call. Will it be the financial crisis that, that unlocks great change? Will it be the pandemic? Um, but what everyone can tell is that at some, at some point, the mud's going to have to come running down the hill. At some point, there will be the trigger, if you like, for the social change. Um, in, in Britain, obviously, the big emblematic example is the Second World War, where you had this kind of accumulated sense of um, the need for change. And obviously, after the Second World War, with the beverage settlement and, and the NHS, you had radical change coming through that that was solving problems that had been building up since the 20s and the 30s. So this wasn't, you know, th these were problems that had been there for a long time. But the war created somehow the conditions that made that possible and that made the politics align. I think partly in a crisis, people see what's possible. And the pandemic, people looked at government and said, well, if we can solve this thing, surely we can, surely we can solve some other big problems in our lives. But, you know, at the moment, it yeah, you kind of you ask the question of are we wasting the crisis at the moment it does seem unclear doesn't it i think are we going to use the, the pandemic to come to affect social change or are we going to put everything back in the box and if you like wait for the next crisis to come along there's a very intriguing phrase in the book where you say um that for some of these bold crazy ideas ubi four-day work week um lowering the voting age um, the political ambiguity of them is reassuring. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I think it's very interesting that I talk in the book about this big, um, big struggle for reform. And I think it's easy to think that's a struggle of left versus right, because that, that tends to be how we frame, obviously, big political arguments. When you look at the um, big moments of reform in history, I actually think often it's not a left versus right struggle so much as a kind of you know, with the future versus the past, however you want to frame it, but it's kind of um, a dogmatist versus reformers. Um, it, it's often that way. And actually a lot of the biggest reformers in history, they, they're not all from the left or from the right. You know, people like Teddy Roosevelt, um, who were kind of quite hard to place on the political spectrum, um, Keynes, like these kind of big reforming intellectuals or politicians. I think not by coincidence, are quite hard. it's quite hard to say were they left of the left or of the right. Um, and in a way, the the real power they had to reform was that they were quite unencumbered, actually. They weren't dogmatic. And so they weren't carrying, you know, the kind of weight and the kind of, um, they, weren't, they weren't carrying all of those outdated ideas with them, arguably. Um, and so I do think it's interesting, if you look at um, basic income, even four-day week, arguably, you know, where would you put those ideas on the political spectrum? The, the basic income has real advocates from libertarians on the right. And Andrew Yang, people on the left, yeah. yeah. And so, um, I think that's quite reassuring in a sense, in that the, probably the ideas that will emerge and become that new common sense aren't going to be your sort of checklist of of the left manifesto, and probably also aren't going to be a checklist of the right, um, because in in a way, left versus right is itself quite an outdated kind of you know way of thinking about things at a time like this. And so, these kind of these new surprising ideas that will emerge that have surprising supporters. Um, and I think we should sort of have our eyes out for, for those ideas. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting watching the French elections and watching Macron. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of, uh, he's set out his stall to dominate the middle ground, mm -hmm. but he's not doing that in a sort of traditional Biden-esque way of being moderate, promising to reach across the aisle. He's quite capable of, on the same day, 
announcing some sort of dog whistle thing for the left mm. and doing it for the right. So, you know, he might say something that is um, very popular with the left-wing media, but then almost immediately go on a rant about immigration or something. And I wonder, and you know, same probably with Le Pen, actually. You know, you've got this thing, apparently very progressive manifesto with a sort of hard right agenda under it. And I wonder if what there is instinctive politicians are sensing is that the electorate are no longer interested in left versus right, traditional versus, you know, progressive versus conservative. They're interested in issues that they feel are pressing and relevant for them right now. Yeah, I think you, you get, well, things are in things are in flux. You get kind of much more... Um movement between those different old categories i think that's true and and you do get i mean obviously with le pen and um and trump and so on you get the emergence of populism because there is this sense of of, of frustration of the system isn't working um, and on some level people are on some level people are right about that, that that kind of instinct of something's not right here and you know old solutions aren't going to work and obviously the, the problematic place that then goes is to kind of this is to, is to a populist and a kind of almost like a burn it down the kind of burn it down agenda um but but likewise there is there's sort of energy latent in that frustration if that makes sense that that can be harnessed and at, at times in history where we manage to harness that energy for reform i think that that's the power is kind of can you harness that energy behind that kind of um whatever you call it, radical centrist, radical reform agenda to reform the system in the way that it needs to be reformed. Yeah. So, so James, let's try and put this together. So we've got a... Um, so let's imagine that we're a, a civil servant or a public servant designing policy or public services and we find ourselves in a moment, a sort of transitional moment maybe a paradigm shift where all of a sudden it's become apparent that the old way of doing government no longer works with a radically changing economy where the sort of the old certainties of left and right are seemingly no longer as relevant which maybe opens up opportunity for change where we've got these um, pandemic, possibly the next pandemic, fairly shortly afterwards, um, these kind of these crises happening at an increasing rate, which maybe give people the permission to be more agile, to do radical things very quickly. As that, as that public servant or civil servant or person working in the third sector, how do you... How do you cut through? How do you make a contribution? Yeah, I think this is a fascinating question. How do you do? How do you do policy work? If you if you if you buy that we're living in a technological revolution, if you like, if we're we're living in this great transition. How do you do policy work at a time like that? I think or service design or public service design. How do you re, how do you reimagine the state? Because I think yeah, the um the fundamentally these are sort of it's ugly words, but I think of the phrase um, institutional architecture. It's kind of the institutions we need new institutions and we need to reimagine old ones yeah you talk about upgrading the states which i think is a great way of articulating it yeah so it's not incrementalist and i think this is um one thing that i'm quite interested in is the if you like the standard ways we think about the standard methods of policy work and and public service design um are not particularly well suited to that 
that bigger task of institutional redesign or reimagining of the, of the state. Um, you partly, I think we became very um, technocratic, I guess, if you kind of think of that, the, the dominant way of thinking about policy in the late 90s was pretty technocratic, very dependent on economics, for example. So almost all the kind of main methodologies were methodologies of economics, kind of cost-benefit analysis or um, the business case process, these kind of methods. Um, and my instinct is actually we need to sort of break out of some of those technocratic economic shackles. Um, it's interesting, I think, when you look at some of the biggest debates in history at the time of the Industrial Revolution, they were really at debates about ethics and about philosophy and about what kind of society we, we need. You know, I have this um, slightly glib <laughs> phrase in the book um, where, where I write that we didn't ban child labour on the basis of a cost-benefit analysis. That that's just not how these debates play out, right? You, you ask, what's the right thing to do here? And then you make the economics work. Um, and interestingly, actually, Keynes has this great phrase that at times like this, you don't start with the economics, you start with ethics. And then you bring in the economics to work it to work it through. Um, and so I do think there's something for all of us, public service um, designers, um, delivery folk and and policy folk about bringing in the ethics um, and even bringing in philosophy to some degree, bringing in different disciplines you know, beyond economics, I think, is is really interesting. I think I think also just you know, incrementalism won't won't cut it at a time like this. So how do you make sure you're asking big enough questions? about policy um, and not just assuming that we'll need to work within the existing categories or, or levers. So how do you kind of, how do you go deeper? I, I sometimes say that the, um, the work goes all the way down. Um, you can't just kind of be working in the surface layers of this thing. You've got to sort of think deeply about the institutions themselves. Um, and yeah, that means breaking out into, into new, new methods, new ways of doing policy work. So, I mean, you've, you've been an advisor at number 10. You worked at cabinet office. Um, for the for the folk who are trying to uh, pull different levers or work in a different way, but are still having to do that um, uh, under the authority of ministers and advisors and private office, how 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 do you think they can persuade? um the, the political class to give them that freedom yeah th this is a great question because i think i think um you know when you talk to people in these roles and I've, I've been in some of these roles they talk about battling the system and this sense that the the system and the conditions around people trying to do this work um make it harder <laughs> the system that should be there to create the conditions in which this work is done is the thing that is making it hard to do the work because you're trying to redesign the system and systems don't like being redesigned. You know? um, and so it's not a coincidence, I think, that a lot of the best work that has happened so far in, in public digital work, for example, public service redesign, has been where people have created, often kind of very good leaders have created bubbles where they've protected teams from the system around them, actually, and have kind of created these different... Um, bubbles within a department or within um, government digital service in the early days. Um, and so, you know, how do we, how do we get past that where we're not having to create small bubbles, I think is, is fascinating. I think um, a lot of this, it's not a coincidence that a lot of those principles of digital work, like working in the open, um, the, the principle around um, show don't tell, I think is really powerful. 
Um, and I do think at a time of change like this, um, building a small example of the new thing and then pointing at it, uh, you know, this again, this familiar method from digital work is much more powerful than trying to just make an argument for why things need to change. So I think actually quite a lot of this is about um, just making more routine use of those kind of principles for good digital work and lifting those principles into policy work as well. Um, because I think the methods of policy work are increasingly similar to the the methods of good of good digital work and good public service delivery. Yeah, and I mean, I, I've observed uh, a super brave deputy director pushing back on the education secretary and the chancellor mm. because he was being presented with user research mm. from you know with from real citizens. And I think um, there's probably a transition, isn't there, where leaders are going to have to like you say create those bubbles around teams and protect them and allow them to to do that work yeah yeah and, and at some point i think it has to flip at some point so there's there's a whole phase where it's sort of under the radar right so you kind of try to get away with doing work like this and at some point we have to confront and it's that's a good example of at some point you have to confront the minister or the permanent secretary to say you are asking the wrong question like you are asking the wrong question or you are you are creating conditions that are not conducive to good work, um, and I do think we're starting in some cases to get to that point. And of course, it's you know, it's not a coincidence as well that as people who are more native to this way of thinking um, move up through the civil service, you start to get people in leadership who who get it and who are there to create these conditions. It takes time, that kind of thing. Um, you know, there's this kind of the phrasing of um, science progresses one funeral at a time which is kind of trying to speak to this point about paradigm shifts. Um, and I sometimes think politics progresses one retirement at a time or, you know, one firing at a time. But um, so to some degree, this needs to work its way through. But I do think increasingly the onus is on reformers, if you like, um, to have the argument, to, to just to have that conversation about how do we need to work um, rather than this sort of getting beyond the kind of flying flying below the radar phase, if you like. So, James, you're talking about these exciting new ideas and perspectives um, with your hat on as a cultural commentator and author. But you've also got a day job, a very important day job as Director of Design Data and Technology at Citizens Advice. So with your Citizens Advice hat on, um, can you talk to me about the work you and your teams are doing there? Yeah, I mean, and it's in a similar space. And one of the things I love about um, it, about the day job is that I can learn, I can see these things playing out in practice, um, you know, as they're applied in the full complexity of organisational change, as many of the listeners will appreciate, and then zoom out and think about the kind of the, his, the historical sweep, if you like, of, of the ideas. Um, I think, you know, like so many organisations, the challenge we have is, Citizens Advice was a service founded upwards of 80 years ago. It was founded in, in response to the outbreak of World War II, actually, in 1939, um, and is a magnificent institution, such an important institution in British life. Um, and for people who don't know, it's founded to give free advice to people. No conditions turn up and will help you with your problems, mostly on issues like debt and applying for benefits and so on, and obviously cost of living challenges um, at the moment in Britain. Um, and there's so many incredible strengths from the history of the organization, the way that we're run, the way that we're a, a network of local charities. So we're decentralized in the way, the way we deliver our services, the brand, the incredible brand that we have, for example, and the trust that people place in that brand. 
And at the same time, of course, you know, the way in which we deliver our services changed unrecognizably in, in some ways. And in the course of the pandemic, obviously, we had to pivot uh, almost overnight away from physical face to face advice to giving entirely remote advice via um, via the phone, via video, via email and so on. And of course, our website has had more hits in the last couple of years than it's ever had in, in, in the history of our service. So that question of how do you reimagine a service like that without losing the value of its history and the, and the and kind of the, the legacy as well is incredibly interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's all of the lessons from 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 great digital work. It's all about uh, people. It's all about culture. It's not about the technology. Um, and what we've done is tried to take, I guess, a lot of the lessons from the government digital service in the UK and, and other digital reform in government, but but try and explore how you could adapt those for a third sector setting. And I do think there's a very interesting question about um, what is the methodology of digital work in the third sector that might be somewhat distinct um, from the method in government. Um, so, you know, for example, we we put, I think, an even stronger emphasis on accessibility and inclusivity um, and the diversity of the teams that we build um, in the work that we do. And we think um, really hard about things like compassion in the way in which we interact with the public. And so it's not just about scale, it's not about reach, it's about um, the humanity of the interaction, for example, even if that's a remote interaction or, or an interaction via our website. Um, and I, I just think there's a whole bunch of fascinating questions for, for charities about uh, the means by which charities apply technology um, in a way that makes their services more accessible rather than less. Um, but it's, it's, it's a work in progress as it is in, in all big complex organisations. Yeah, there's, a, uh, I think, a fascinating thing in there where you talk about, if I'm getting it right, you're talking about, um, this may be a bit of a reductive way of thinking about it, but essentially building compassion into the service design. Yeah. Because government can't really, government doesn't really do that. Government has to be neutral and authoritative mm. at all times. But in a, like you said, in a third sector setting, You've got to think about that in a in a bit of a different way. So, uh, can you give an example of how you build compassion into the service design? Yeah, it, it's a really interesting one, and it's about the nature of the relationship between us and the people who need us, who who, who use our service. And I think um, some of it is about, and this is familiar, I think, in government work, is about um, how do you design an empowering service? So, how do you how do you design a service that unlocks the potential that is, is within communities, for example. So we don't do things to people. We provide a way in which volunteers can, through our service, give advice to other people in their community. So it's partly about um, seeing it in those kind of, um, in those terms from, from the start. I also think, as you say, there's, there's something about um, a charity can have a different kind of relationship with a person than a government can, I think necessarily in some sense. And we always, um, you know, in a way we're kind of, we're by the person's side working with them as opposed to kind of interacting transactionally with them like a government might. Um, so a lot of our advice, for example, is it's not information, it's it's tactics. Um, it's helping people think through in this circumstance, what kind of things might you want to do next? Um, and equipping people to leave with a sense of agency um, and a sense of, um, I'm just always struck when you when you walk into a local citizen's device, what you see is people come in tense, um, 
and there's a sense in which people leave with their shoulders a little more relaxed that, that they can they, they know they, they they find a way forward is the way that we put it um, and i think there's something just really interesting about um that interaction the nature of that partnership um where you're sort of empowering working with people giving people the tools to leverage the rights they already have because um, a lot of our work is about helping people to realize they have more power than they realized when they walked in and when they walk out they realize they have that power um and it's fascinating and it's, that is i think a different kind of relationship than you can have between the state and a, and a citizen so james what's next another book yeah i think <laughs> um big question i think I'm thinking a lot about these, these, these questions. I think, um, I don't know the answer is one thing at all. I think no one does yet. I'm not even sure we have a, that good a grasp on the problem. And I think, um, you know, one, one thing I'm quite committed to doing, because I think it's so important at a time like this is, um, it's just trying to make sense of what's going on. Um, so my, my first book was partly about just trying to describe what's happening, um, to make sense of it. Um, and also partly about hope because this is the other kind of thing I'm very committed to is um, personally, I feel very optimistic about all of this. It's very easy to get gloomy um, given the scale of what, what's needed. Um, but when I read, you know, hit the history of, of, of change, actually the, the, my big takeaway is we, we can do this. You know, we've kind of, we've been here before and we can, we can do it again. So I'm thinking about, um, yeah, how do I, how do I, how do I help, inject some more optimism and hope into these debates how do i help make sense of it create spaces in which people can talk about these things and bring clarity to these kind of ideas um and maybe a second book at at, at the right time yeah mm, well it's very much needed um i've uh, i've really enjoyed i've really enjoyed end state i think it's it's certainly one of my books of the year where um where can people find out about more more about you and the book yeah, so the book, I should say, my, my agent will kill me if I don't say, the book is out in paperback and um, came out very recently. So if you Google End State, and um, I'm sure that will come up, all good bookshops. Um, uh, Twitter is the main platform I use, so James T. Plunkett on Twitter um, and follow me there. And I've got a Medium blog as well, so I'm, um, I made a slightly foolhardy commitment to publish a blog a week uh, throughout the whole course of this year um, on, the, on the question of how do we govern the future. So similar themes we've been talking about. So yeah, follow me, follow me on Medium as well. Thanks. Thanks, James Plunkett.